Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large. And I think you'll see today that uh, what you're going to talk, we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans, but it does have implications for how that came about. Our complete card emission statement, which we've worked on, is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. We try to minimize complex organizational structures, and hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merle Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler from the University of Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. One of the special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago. And I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes, and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups, and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response, and we'll end with some um, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. So our last speaker before the break um, will be Anne Stone. Um, she, she has actually a kind of a, a remarkable history. She has, was a Fulbright Scholar with Svante Pabo, did her postdoc with Michael Hammer, and uh, has been basically at Arizona State as a professor. She's worked on a number of different projects related to human genetic diversity. Um, her interests are broad. She studies ancient DNA. She studies uh, South American uh, uh, diversity. I believe that will be the title of her talk today. Welcome. Um, Today I'm going to tell you about a project that um, I started in about uh, 2000, and um, this was uh, working with Peruvian populations and um, 
was basically because of interest that I've had for a long time in the peopling of the Americas and the diversity in, in the Americas. And so today I'll talk um, specifically about South American biodiversity, but of course um, people got there <laughs> through North America, and so I want to go over some of the hypotheses very quickly about this part of the world. So Sarah gave you a very nice introduction to the diversity and long history in Africa. Um, the Americas, on the other hand, were one of the more recent parts of the world to be colonized by humans. And um, the hypotheses about that are really, there are four major hypotheses. Two are um, reasonable and two are sort of wacko fringe theories, but I'll tell you about them. <laughs> um, so the first is the Bering Land Bridge. And the Bering Land Bridge is right up here. Uh, it is, uh, was created during the Ice Age when sea levels were lower. Uh, and one of the, Id the idea here is that people came over the land bridge and then down uh, through what's known as an ice-free corridor between the two great glacial masses. Uh, now, this ice-free corridor was not open the entire time, so there was only a limited window of opportunity to go through that. Uh, the second is the Pacific Coastal Route, so also basically going along the land bridge, but along the coast. Uh, and this one I sort of favor because, you know, there's nice salmon and other tasty things to eat when you are moving along this, this, this area. And we know that even during the height of glaciation, there were islands and other regions, parts of this area that were not glaciated. Um, then we have our fringe theories, one being the Pacific Crossing, uh, and this uh, I think stems from Thor Heyerdahl and friends, but um, there's really no evidence that this happened early on because we know the peopling of, the, of Polynesia didn't occur until much later. Um, we do, there, there is the possibility that there was some contact. There's some debate about chickens being exchanged, and we wonder how the sweet potato uh, got into the Pacific, and it's likely that it came from South America. But this is more of a fringe theory. And then our final fringe theory is the Atlantic crossing, uh, and this is favored by one archaeologist who sees similarities in some stone point types of tool technologies. So these two uh, we're not really going to talk about. <laughs> um, but just here is sort of the map of Beringia, and you can see that 18,000 years ago is the glacial maxima. But the ice-free corridor really doesn't open up until much more recently. And because, uh, also I should mention that the, um, okay, well, just never mind, but, but the, the, Strait doesn't open up until about 8,000 years ago, um, although even today you can walk across the sea ice. Um, so we do know that people were in the Americas by um, definitely by 13,000 years ago, um, likely much earlier. Monte Verde is down in Chile, and we know that probably people came into the New World and they didn't say, hey, this area looks great, let's keep going. Okay, <laughs> um, you know, it probably took them a while to get down there. So, so our estimates are that somewhere in the fifteen to twenty thousand year ago range is when the Americas were colonized. Uh, but they get all the way down to Chile um, by at least thirteen thousand years ago, and possibly later, earlier. Excuse me. Okay, so the general questions that we ask about biodiversity in South America, uh, one of the major questions was 
is there a genetic discontinuity between Eastern and Western populations of South America? And this is a question that really developed because of how um, genetic studies were initially done in South America, and most of them focused on populations in Amazonia. Now, Amazonia is a region that today is occupied by smaller groups of hunter-gatherers or Sweden agriculturalists. Um, and we think, based on archaeological data, that actually the population there was much, much larger in the past. But now the populations are much smaller, uh, and there's often big differences genetically between them, probably because of genetic drift. Uh, whereas in Western South America, this is not the case, and so there's been ideas about what that might be. And then in general, like most other parts of the world, uh, we have questions about how much geography and language affect genetic diversity and the patterning of that diversity, about migration rate differences between sexes, and in uh, the extent of admixture between non-native and native populations because of the history of colonization. Okay, so this shows you sort of a map. Here's the um, question about whether the patterns that we see in South America are because of uh, the genetic drift between small populations that we see today in the Amazonian regions and extensive gene flow up and down the Andes, or is it some people thought that it was perhaps due to uh, independent migrations. Um, some of the populations that I'll be talking about uh, include uh, some of these from the lowlands, uh, Givenchy, Gaval, uh, Tacuna, some are on the map, some are not, Ache. Um, but the bulk of what I'll be talking about are populations in Peru, including these and others, uh, that we have been working with. And um, a lot of work in the Andes wasn't done until recently because of basically political situation there. And uh, a lot more has been done more recently. So the loci that we focused on are a little more low-tech than what Carlos was talking about. And this was for a couple of reasons. One is that I was collaborating with two uh, labs in Peru, and we wanted to do a lot of the work in Peru. And there is one DNA sequencer in Peru, and it is owned by the police and they will not let us use it. <laughs> so um, we decided to also focus on loci that have been studied in many other populations so that we would be able to compare our data. And so we focused on mitochondrial DNA, uh, which is inherited maternally, uh, Y chromosome, which is inherited paternally, so we could get a sense of, of sex-biased migration patterns. Uh, and then we decided to focus on 20 ALU insertion polymorphisms. And these are autosomal, so they give us a general picture of the genome. But the great thing about them is that they're very easy to score on just a gel. And so you don't need um, you know, a, a nice fancy sequencing apparatus. Now the downside is, is we don't have 5,000 markers from all over the genome that hopefully soon we will, but um, it limits what you're able to say. And, and we're basically at a point in South America where we were in Europe maybe 10, 15 years ago in terms of, of the density of, of marker. Um, okay, so just to give you a sense, <coughs> Oops, sorry, <laughs> let's cough this way, um, of the diversity in Peru. Um, there's extensive linguistic diversity. Um, most of the populations that we sampled were in the Andes and speak Aymara, Aymara or Quechua or variants of that. Um, there's tons of diversity once you go off the Andean slope into the Amazonian basin. It's very difficult to collect there because they grow coca. 
And when people come asking for blood and things, they might shoot you. So, so you have to be careful. <laughs> um, so at any rate, most of our sampling was here. Um, we also wanted to get diversity from, or get samples from a diverse geographic sampling, and so from different parts of the Andes. And you can see here on this map some of the different groups that were sampled. Okay, so to give you a sense uh, of the picture from mitochondrial DNA, um, there was very high genetic diversity in the Andes. This is, as I'll reiterate later, uh, a much higher than you see in the Amazon. Um, these are the A, B, C, and D are the most common haplogroups for mitochondrial DNA in the Americas. These haplogroups are also found in Asia, of course, uh, giving you a sense of, their, of the ancestry of Native Americans, um, but there are specific types that are, are common in the Americas within the haplogroups. Um, so quite a bit of diversity here in the Andes. Um, we did find five out of uh, 436 that were non-Native Americans, so indicating maternal admixture. Um, and these included two uh, of types that are African, uh, one that's common in Europe, and two that we couldn't really uh, distinguish which part of the world uh, because it's kind of found all over. Um, okay, so we did a number of analyses to get a sense of whether linguistic or spatial or geographic uh, um, aspects uh, affected the genetic diversity more. And what we found really is no significant overall correlation between geographic or linguistic um, signal on the pattern of diversity that we see. Um, I also sh uh, we also compared with the other loci, but I'm not really going to get into that. But at any rate, um, what this says is that there's really quite a bit of homo homogeneity in the Andes. Um, and uh, I'll mention this again later, this you'll see is a common theme, but when we think about the history in the Andes, it's one of expansions and contractions of empires and a lot of people moving around, okay? So this is perhaps not surprising. Um, on the Y chromosome, the great majority of males sampled fell into a haplogroup known as QM3. And this is a, a haplogroup that's very common in the Americas. However, um, the next most common haplogroup is one called RP25. And this was found at 24%, and this is a European haplogroup. So um, in the Americas, of course, particularly South America, much of the colonization was done by Spanish soldiers and sailors, and they were male and they had girlfriends. <laughs> so, uh, so we see this in the genetic legacy. The other thing that I would point out is that here, um, this is a, a MDS plot, you see that the um, Andean populations cluster here in the center of the plot, and then these groups here are uh, Amazonian groups, and they are sort of at the periphery. And the reason for that is that genetic drift has usually driven the diversity to be very low in those groups, and so they tend to sort of centrifugal force, if you will, um, be at the edges uh, of the great diversity that you see here in the Andes. 
Okay, so once again, we looked at uh, spatial autocorrelation analyses to look at um, how geographic distance affects um, genetic diversity, and we see a very weak positive correlation between pairs of populations that are fairly close together, so Cusco and Andahuaylas. Cusco was the capital of the Incan Empire, uh, Andahuaylas is fairly nearby. Other uh, associations we don't see. Um, and also with Mantell tests, the linguistic tests um, show similar results. Uh, the ALO insertions show a similar picture. You do see some geographic patterning that's a little bit hazy and doesn't really show up in statistical analyses. Uh, fairly heterozygous, given that these particular loci were identified in other populations in the world. Um, and again, we don't see a significant overall correlation between geographic distance uh, and the genetic distances, and also um, the linguistic results were similar as well. Um, so let's get back to our series of questions as I rapidly went through the Peruvian results. Is there a genetic discontinuity between Eastern and Western populations of South America? The answer is no. When you pull the data from each half of the continent, you see the same haplotypes and haplogroups, um, and you don't see differences in the overall level of diversity. The difference is in the patterning. So in the Andes, we have very little genetic structure from the markers that we've used here. Whereas Amazonian populations, there's very high between population diversity, and genetic drift is a major factor. Um, and this is something that may actually be fairly recent because we know from archaeological data that populations in the Amazon in the past were perhaps much larger, and the impact of contact um, has probably decimated many of the native populations there. Um, so this, I put this slide in, and then I realized that I had left most of the Amazonian populations out, but Here's, um, often you see a pie that's there's no difference there, and the levels of diversity are often um, much, much lower. This, is, this happens to be mitochondrial data, uh, but again, uh, and this, uh, you've seen sort of a similar picture from the Y chromosome. Again, the Andes have this cluster of diversity, whereas the um, Amazonian populations are more peripheral because of the process of genetic drift. So is language more influential than geography? And this has been a question that's been asked in many different parts of the world. You know, how much of a barrier is speaking a different language? Um, how much does geography matter? And in a place like the Andes, you would think that geography would matter a lot because there are these big giant mountains uh, and it's not easy to move through the Amazon, for example. Um, there are subtle patterns of genetic differentiation based on language and geography. In the Andes, they don't really jump out at you. I suspect if we had 5,000 markers, um, as Carlos does from Europe, we would, see a sim we would be able to see uh, a, a clearer pattern. Um, because if you look at the same sorts of data, mitochondrial Y chromosome and, and you know, 10 to 20 alu polymorphisms in Europe, you get sort of a similar picture of homogeneity and a lot of movement, okay? So I think going to a higher resolution, we would be able to distinguish things better, and I think that would be a very interesting thing to do. We do see that this group um, who speak Tupe or uh, Jakaru, which is a very, um, an endangered language, I think there's only about 2,000 speakers, 
um, they do tend to differentiate from the, both the Quechua and the Aymara. Um, so they're a bit of an isolate. Uh, but from, from our research uh, in the language in terms of, and geography in, in terms of a factor at this resolution, we don't see a big difference. Um, and as if, you, if I backed up, all of those little pictures are from different empires um, that spread and moved and actually actively moved people around the Andes um, during their reign. And these include the Inca, Tiwanaku, Wari, and others. Um, we do see subtle patterns of geography still. And I think, again, a denser mark, uh, marker would allow us to do this better. Um, on the topic of admixture, um, the levels of non-native admixture are largely male-mediated, and this is not a huge surprise. Um, what is interesting when you work in Peru, particularly talking to people who see themselves as descendants of Spaniards, um, almost always when you do their mitochondrial DNA, it's native, and they are always very surprised. Um, because almost all the mitochondrial haplotypes um, are Native American. Uh, and for me, this wasn't surprising. For them, it was, <laughs> uh, including the blonde Peruvian working in my lab. <laughs> she was very surprised. Uh, alu insertions, Peruvians, um, most similar to other Native Americans and Asians, not surprising. Um, the bulk of the genome is reflecting that Native American ancestry, uh, and Native Americans are more closely related to Asians than Europeans. Um, okay, and finally, I'd like to acknowledge the many people that I worked with. Um, Dr. Beatriz Lizaraga at the um, Universidad Nacional Mayor de San Marcos, and Dr. Veronica Rubin de Celes Massa at Universidad Ricardo Palma were my primary collaborators in Peru. And we had a host of students who were working with us and a very important part of the project, and of course the people of Peru who participated. Thank you. My name is Ajit Varki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carta, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, the Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the executive director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> so in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. <laughs> Question number nine in the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, 
That's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala in the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say, human. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.